0: Welcome to the Ward Zero podcast, covering the civic issues you most want to talk about. You are now entering Ward Zero.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 11 of the Ward Zero podcast. My name is Asmahan Razavi, and I'm joined by Darren Krauss and Jeremy Zhao. We want to begin with a land acknowledgement in the spirit of reconciliation. We acknowledge that we live, work, and record this podcast on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. So here's what we've got coming at you this episode. We're going to talk about three more communities that are being recommended for approval the Sovereignty Act, which has been in the news quite a bit. Danielle Smith is proposing what essentially seems like an Alberta goes at it alone approach. And we've got some quick hits and hot takes for you as well. And we're going to start with a super hot take. You want to go for this, Darren?
2: Uh, well, it wasn't my hot take, but I'd be happy to hot take this one. <laughs>
1: <That's Sorry. okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was yours. Um... You know, and it's I, super hot,
2: actually. Yeah, it, it, it is super hot. I mean, we've seen uh, a real transformation. I know that that Jeremy Farkas, former Ward 11 councillor and former mayoral contender, he, he actually captured a lot of people's attention in Calgary with his uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Calgary area fundraiser, where he trekked 4,200 kilometres from the Mexico border up to Canada along the Pacific Crest Trail. and. And he did finish, I think it was last week. And I mean, in conversations that I've had with Jeremy, and uh, I know that others have had with him as well, there's a little bit of a, a change. Well, actually, a lot of bit of a change uh, that you've seen in him. He's He's really used this as an opportunity to reflect on his time as a counsellor. Not sure if that's just setting the stage for... A uh, kinder, gentler Jeremy Farkas in politics moving forward, or whether there really is a fundamental shift in, in his values and, and the way that he views that that political life or his contribution to the city or, or the province. Uh, nonetheless, he's raised close to $125,000 for an organization that uh, I know has a need and there is a need for mentors in the community. So, you know, regardless of what his ultimate goal is through all of this, I still think that it was great for him to raise that money, to take that time and any sort of reflection on oneself, I think is extremely valuable.
0: So the other hot take, which I found hilarious was uh, the celebration of Alberta Day obviously LiveWire did an article you know showing tens of people showing up outside city hall to celebrate Alberta Day so I'm I'm very curious you know you know whether it achieved its intent of you know celebrating the culture and the spirit of Alberta or or whether it was just something cobbled together with a with an outgoing premier
2: it, it just seemed it just seemed hilarious to me you know at the end of the day that was one of our most read stories already in in September I know that we've only been a few a few days in but uh easily will probably be one of the most read stories <laughs>
1: interesting yeah um I don't know what to say I, did anybody here celebrate Alberta Day
2: it was How does just, one
1: celebrate Alberta Day?
2: You know what, Esmahan, I celebrate Alberta Day every day. because I
1: too celebrate. I Alberta. am actually
2: a very proud Albertan, uh, born and raised here. Not that that really matters, but born and raised here and for a lot of other reasons than, you know, just what many people you know the the redneck gun toting you know conservative mentality for a lot of other reasons i'm really proud of alberta and and so i i like to think that that through the work that i do in the community the work that i do with live and other things i don't want to sound all fluffy about this but you know i i like to think i celebrate alberta day every day and i don't need a special day to to celebrate what i enjoy about my province
1: that was really, really profound and beautiful, Darren. Uh, oh, I will,
2: stop. <laughs> I will say,
1: I will say, I'm going to add to that and say, I think that it's cool to celebrate Alberta Day by making Alberta an even better place. And so there's a lot of cool work, uh, I think, that goes on. And maybe that should be highlighted next Alberta Day. What is the good stuff that Albertans are doing to make Alberta an even better place?
2: See, that was way more profound than me.
1: <laughs> Don't know. That was just an off the cuff wow. idea.
2: Mine is very backward looking about how awesome Alberta was. Yours is very, how awesome can we make Alberta? Well, we are
1: cool in many ways. Okay, so let's go into our segments. And we're going to start with talking about three more communities So you'll remember in the spring, and we actually talked about this on the podcast, the city of Calgary approved five new communities. Now, three more communities are being recommended to council. That means that in the last year, since the new council has been in place, we have a total of eight new communities. There are a few interesting points that you, Jeremy, and you, Darren, have brought up in the pre-show. So one is that interest rates are driving people to more affordable housing versus single family homes. And that I know, Darren, you were saying that you're hearing constantly that there is an expectation that uh, in the next like three, four years, 80,000 people are going to be coming to live in Calgary and they need a place to live. So three new communities, it's going to be coming up here. Uh, What are your thoughts?
0: We talked about five new communities already last episode, and now we're adding three more. And we already approved, I think it was 13 or 14, you know, last council. so you know, I understand there's a need for more housing, um, because we, uh, one of the arguments is that there's a shortage of housing, which makes it unaffordable in the long term. But at what point do we we say there's enough communities? At what point do we say there are uh, enough new communities that we should be focused on that have been approved already? And we should focus on those ones, because the more we grow, the more there's a there's a burden on the operating expense and operating costs in the long term and you know kind of pre-show we were talking about how this may or may not be sustainable in the long term because there's no there's no long term planning there's no long term anticipation of how we actually uh, will operate these communities how will schools be integrated how will you know healthcare facilities be integrated in the long term can we even do that because we've seen in the past we just hollow out this the inner city, you know, all this infrastructure that was built, but nobody's living there. And now we keep building out and out and out. And by the time we build them, it's already too late because those, those families have kids that have grown up and moved out already.
2: You know, Jeremy, you raise a number of good points. Not only is there the city infrastructure that kind of gets left behind in in some sense as we continue to grow out, but also every time we add these new communities, we got to put pipe in the ground. We got to put roads out there. And what I found interesting in the admin report was, should these communities go ahead, there's no additional capital cost required. There is an operating cost that will uh the city will have to take on but what it does is if we grow any further than some of these recently approved communities or soon to be approved communities it could actually trigger the need for up to 4.4 billion dollars of additional infrastructure and the city flagged that as one of the risks of doing this is that we don't have the money and so Some of these communities that are looking for more infrastructure, whether that's a a transit station, a fire station, uh, uh, upgrades to the the water or the, the pumping stations and whatnot, some of those might be a little bit further down the road. And that in and of itself may sort of stunt a little bit of the growth or a little bit of the build out in some of these areas until we can catch up with that infrastructure. I see that as a real problem, not to mention the fact that yes, it's gonna tack on operating costs to the city, that given that some of those communities from 2018 haven't been built out, and I'm sure that there was a promise that tax revenue would be flowing in from those, we could end up in the same situation where we're carrying operating costs for five to 10 years down the road before we see any sort of substantial build out in these new communities. But I want to point out one other thing. And you know, I I'm not a climate alarmist, and I hate to use that term because it almost seems a little bit of a pejorative now to say a climate alarmist, because we should all be alarmed to some degree about the climate. But given the cat the city of Calgary's commitment to their climate strategy, I was somewhat shocked that climate was only addressed in the very last paragraph of the admin report and it did say you know by adding new communities we're not going to meet our targets we're going to have a tough time adapting and changing to to address some of our greenhouse gas emissions and some of the targets that we've put in place and i know that the mayor in the past has said i wish we would write these reports differently and i think this is one of those cases where the risk I mean, they didn't even outline it in the risk area, you know, the uh, immediate issues and risks area of the report. It was down in the bottom under their triple bottom line portion where they outlined the risk. And one of the risks was that it, it makes it tough for us to meet climate targets. So a little bit surprised by that, given all of the hoopla around the city of Calgary's climate strategy.
1: Thanks for bringing that up, Darren. I think the mayor started council or or her term on council with the climate emergency. That was like one of the signature things that she brought in um, after being elected. And a lot of counselors were supportive. And so there does seem to be like a bit of an incongruency between that emphasis that, you know, maybe like the the counselors and, and the mayor have put on climate and then the way that administration is approaching the issue. And I don't know how many people are going to read through an admin report and be like, oh, okay, like this means we're not going to meet our targets. And I think there was some skepticism when the climate emergency came forward about what it would actually mean in terms of targets. And I feel like things like this increase that skepticism, you know, because if we're like taking action that we know is going to be resulting in us being unable to meet our targets, then Like, like, what is the purpose of the targets here? Are they just a guideline that we, it's like aspirational and we try to meet, or are they, is it actually a directive that like influences how we decide which policies or uh, initiatives we should move forward on? So I think, yeah, thanks for bringing up the climate aspect. A few other things, I think, you know, I think when someone goes and buys a house, you're not just thinking about the home you're buying, you're also thinking about everything around it. And many people who buy single homes, single family homes also have like young children, they may have like parents who are living with them. And so they expect schools to be there, they expect, you know, a certain level of healthcare to be around them. And I don't know that like building out and out is going to meet these people's expectations, right? Like, it's like, it's almost like you're putting like a skeleton of, of a house out there that people can buy and live in. But like, what are they also buying with it? Are, are their children going to be able to go to school in the neighborhood? Are they going to be able to like access amenities? I, I think that there needs to be a little bit more honesty there. Because I wonder if people knew that whether they would be so inclined to buy so far out from the city. Like, I think that that's something that is important as well. And I mean, like, we approved five. Now there's three on the table. How many more are coming? And how many more are we going to see approved over the next term? Because it feels like this happens a piece at a time. And then like, we're not necessarily thinking about the overall big picture and what it means in terms of our city's growth and big things that we're trying to meet, like, um, you know, climate targets or anything like that.
2: You know, I, I want to touch on a couple of things uh, that you mentioned there, Esmahan. First off, I had the pleasure of doing a couple of stories in Mahogany. It, strict, strictly by coincidence, did, I did two stories, I believe, last week or the week before in, in Mahogany. Definitely considered one of the newer suburban communities. I believe that there's there's edge growth right either still in Mahogany or right next to Mahogany. I was surprised at a couple of things because I hadn't toured really deep into the area. I was surprised by the wetland area, the environmental area that was included in that neighborhood. I was very surprised, very, very surprised by the tree canopy in the neighborhood along all the boulevards. In 10 years, they're going to have boulevards that look exactly like the ones in inner city Calgary. The density there, yeah, there were single family homes and they were built really close together. And, you know, so that obviously presents some issues that I know the fire department has has talked about in the past, Uh, but there also was quite a bit of density in some of these communities. So yes, we're building on the edge. Uh, I think the communities that we are building on the edge are getting a little bit better To your point about the schools, one of the reasons I was out there was for the opening of the Mahogany School, something that a lot of parents and families have been waiting for for a number of years. You raised the point about parents or or adults wanting families. Maybe they have parents who need to live in, in their homes with them. And when I talked with Counselor Dan McLean, that's one of the things that he had brought up was... You can't always do that in in inner city communities. There, There just isn't a lot of space. And if there is space like that, it is certainly not affordable you can go out to some of these communities and probably get into a home for around the 400, 450 mark and that same kind of home in one of the inner city communities where you may be able to have a a so-called mother-in-law suite or or a backyard suite or room for the kids and the dog to play in the backyard. It's just not attainable in the inner city, uh, especially if it's being like slated to be bulldozed. So the point that he made was was we've got to build these houses where people want to live, but we got to build the types of houses people want to live in, regardless of where they're at in their life or the families that they want to build or having the multi generational families together. And, and so, to that end, he said it's important to still build this. And he used an interesting term. He said it shouldn't be either or, it should be an all of the above strategy. And that is to make sure that we have homes in suburban areas where people want to live, but also stay committed to inner city development. And you know, I I don't want to hedge against you know the development of the inner city, but I can I can understand certainly where Councillor McLean is coming from on that.
1: Yeah, I I would push back on that a little bit because especially with like multi generational families and like parents who are like wanting to age in place because. I don't think our suburbs are built for people who are elderly. You know, the, the way that we deal with like sidewalk clearances, there's no place for people to go walking without like risk of falling. Um, the amenities aren't really close by, like essentially you're building a home for people to not necessarily be able to leave or engage in community in a really meaningful way. And of course, that's not true of anyone, of everyone, I should say. I th- I think it's like, yes, of course, there is a lot of truth to like how much how much people can afford in the inner city, but I feel like there isn't enough thought being given to like, okay, what what are you doing to make a community actually livable for people who are not young parents with like young children? And and I'm thinking especially of the elderly. I don't know that we have enough infrastructure that's like allowing people to age in place, which I think is a huge problem that is going to be coming to us as a society as like, we have a more and more elderly population.
0: I think there's a, and I've always seen it as a trade-off, right? Like I'm not I'm not against suburban, you know, living. I prefer much to live in the inner city, but there's always a trade-off, right? So that that argument, I guess the the Ward 13 counselor had brought up is yes, there's a hev- heavy capital cost at the beginning to live in the inner city. But there may be trade-offs with, you know, uh reduced uh, amount of money spent towards gas or the reduced amount of time that you spend Traversing from place to place, right? Versus, you know, I only have this amount of money right now. This is the down payment I can put in. So I am going to live in Mahogany, but there's a cost to it. I have to buy a car. And probably long term, you're going to have to buy an electric car, right? Things are getting phased out and those aren't cheap. And to Esman's point about, you know, aging in place, right? Seniors, how are they going to go from Mahogany to, you know, community centers or to places where people their age congregate to meet up, right? That's not going to necessarily be in Mahogany. It's going to be in some other community. And one of the big things that I see is a misalignment to, between all these communities that are being built versus the long-term planning of transportation, particularly transit in the city. There is no alignment. The LRT, for the longest time, my friends joked, it's a 1.5 LRT line, right? The, the West kind of inched out a little bit, but there's really just really two LRT lines in the entire city and we're struggling still to kind of build out that green line and it's not going to be built out any further anytime soon so I see huge misalignments but I think from a resident or a Calgarian perspective you have to know what the trade-offs are and I wish I had better words to to describe kind of where this is going but I'm saying there's a responsibility on your end to understand that you know i get your financial situation but there will be trade offs and what are those costs in the long term those societal costs and i know not everybody can afford it this 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 kind of sounds like a, a, a rant from kind of a privileged position but i'm saying there are there are serious impacts to how people will live um, you know their expenses long term because they're forced to purchase these homes because they're more affordable. And I don't I don't think that's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying that's kind of what's happening right now.
1: I, I think the point points you've made are like super important, especially around like misalignment and transit. And I think like if people are If whichever counselor votes for these communities, I hope to see them be the biggest proponents of transit, because especially like thinking about like our aging population, like at a certain age, people can't drive. So how are they supposed to get anywhere? You know, like it's expensive to like live on Ubers and taxis and it's not fair. You know, I met someone in the community in a community a few weeks ago. He was an old man living on a fixed income and he likes to volunteer at the Calgary I think it was the zoo He told me. And he was like, I cut back how many times I go to the zoo to one time a week because of how expensive gas is. And so those are like real problems that I don't think are, are embedded enough in this discussion. So I'm really glad you you spoke about the transit piece here. I mean, it, it's not to say like... It's not to say one is necessarily the answer, but like, we have to like think through all the implications and so, yeah, it might sound nice to be like, yeah, like, you know, there's a mother-in-law suite, but like, what are you doing to then support that person to like live fully in that community?
0: And I want to point out one thing. I, um, they held something called the Victoria Forum here last week, and it was a partnership between uh, UVic and the Senate of Canada. And it was like a three-day kind of uh, event open to the public uh, where they were talking about uh, dialogue. And one of the themes, trending themes that came up constantly was we need transit. We need transit development and investment in order to bridge that affordability gap, you know, the income disparity gap that we're seeing. Transit is one of the best pathways to, you know, make things more affordable, allow, you know people from all different, we'll call it uh, income classes, to be able to participate in society in a a meaningful manner. So it was just one of those themes that kept coming coming up and up again. And I really wanted to highlight that as part of this discussion here.
1: The Sovereignty Act, um, this is something that Danielle Smith has brought forward as you know she is a candidate in the leadership race for the UCP and it essentially would allow Alberta to ignore federal rulings federal law to some degree and really make it like so that Alberta can go out alone. It has been widely derided as unconstitutional. Uh, I believe that just very recently, a number of other UCP leadership candidates came forward and were like, this is uh, not good. And it's not good for our province because um, among other things, it's also going to drive away investment. So, you know, we know that Calgary has really been trying to attract investment in different uh, sectors of the economy from tech to film to everything like that. How does a Sovereignty Act, which she has said will be bill one, I believe, so, you know, we'll see that like sometime in October, I suppose. How will that affect Calgary? And in particular, this idea that we want to be, you know, attracting investment and and attracting people from all over the country slash world.
0: It's also interesting because it's even involved the uh, lieutenant governor, whether it was it was meant to to be on purpose or an unintentional remark on what she would do. So. I think the uncertainty in the short term probably won't and won't really affect business investments. But once you actually enforce, you know, the sovereignty act or whatever form that comes in, you're gonna have companies definitely going you know we don't really know how to handle the certain enforce. it depends on what they enforce right it depends on the certain laws or the certain certain uh, legislation federal legislation that they do or do don't want to enforce but i think short term it won't really matter but long term you know it can raise that an issue if it were to pass
2: i actually think it affects a lot of things not just the economy but including the economy the sovereignty act at least in my mind and I'll be honest I haven't studied it in depth but it has two purposes and and at least from the way it's being portrayed because this is the this is the selling job that Danielle Smith has done on this first of all it's there to protect oil and gas and prevent any perceived federal overreach on on these issues but it's also covid uh maybe firearms as well i mean when Danielle Smith puts it out she reminds people of the sovereignty act and she always or regularly connects it to how the government is overreaching on covid whether that's airport restrictions or whether that's vaccine mandates or even if there's an announcement that boosters health canada has approved boosters for for kids or whatever so it's very much being placed in there as a wedge issue, trying to reach those people who are hardcore oil and gas, who are hardcore anti-COVID regulations, and those folks who tend to be licensed firearms owners. I mean, there's a, there's a definite group that she's trying to appeal to with this. And I think that that brings a lot of instability and uncertainty because there's obviously a driving force on the other side of things and for a lot of businesses or corporations that are looking to alberta for certainty for stability if you never know how the province is going to respond to federal rules regulations policy uh what why would you want to come here like it's 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 almost uh a situation it's the reason why a lot of uh dictatorships or banana republics or or other places have a real difficult time stimulating their economy is because it's unstable you never know how a government is going to respond one way or the other and i believe given where alberta wants to go uh, particularly calgary in terms of tech and innovation and that sort of thing I think there's a real danger that it could have an impact on who comes here and the decisions that they make to come here. So, uh, I I also think it it puts Alberta in a in a negative light with the federal government and that sh- I mean, should it stay liberal depending on what happens in, in in an upcoming election, that could hinder future federal funding that comes to the province for things like innovation, for things like the economy. Or or transit or or whatnot. So I think we've got to be cognizant of the the far reaching impact something like this has, and doing it at the expense of just winning the UCP leadership.
1: Yeah, I think that there there's a lot you said there that's super important. And I what I think is interesting that well there are many things. One is that I, you know, I'm I'm sure most people have seen the Alberta is calling commercial that has, has come out, you know, it's kind of like one of Premier Kenny's last hurrahs, I suppose, trying to attract people from all over the country to come live here. And to both of your points, when they are seeing this in the head the headlines over and over again, I don't know that they want to live in a province that is positioning itself as like, you know, pseudo separatist. And I think you made a really important point, Darren, which is that like, there's a correlation between a, like oh, sh- holding these types of views to the, to this extent and then being angry. Right. And then politic like using that anger as like a political weapon. Like once you open, you know, what, what's the expression? Like once the genie is out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. And that is what Kenny saw, right? I mean, let's be like, let's be honest. Like he, I mean, I will say to some degree was like, you know, playing both sides of the, of the vaccine conversation. He uh, also has been not to this degree, uh, obviously, but also he's, he's been like flirting with that, like, uh, like Alberta, you know, we're, we, we are mad at the federal government, which fair enough, but like we're going to approach things in a different way and stoking that anger for political gain. Um, And I feel like the real danger here is these politicians continuing to stoke anger, not recognizing that like they're essentially like going to be lighting a fire. And um, we're seeing that in different parts of the world. And it is actually like a scary thing because it's going to, degrade our democracy. It's going to potentially lead to like, I don't know, things that things that like will undermine us as a functioning democracy, I will say. Um, And then from the business community perspective, like if you are a large corporation or something like that, and you see that you're going to be playing political football, you're going to be essentially like engage in political football, whether you want to or not, because, you know, the premier is going to go out and say like, oh, the federal government did this and we're going to challenge this. That's really tough because then you don't know how to plan five ahead, 10 years ahead. And one of like the things that businesses, especially large corporations need to do is have that kind of like certainty about what are their long-term plans. Otherwise it's it's harmful to their bottom line. And I will say too, that the CEO of the chamber of commerce, Deb Yedlin also spoke Uh, And I I think, you know, about how this will essentially really drive away investment and uh, talent, frankly.
2: You know, there's another aspect to this too, Esmahan, and and something you said really sort of triggered this on me. Uh, Alberta's major cities are generally led by more progressive folks. And if, our progressive leaders in these respective cities continually come out against something like the Sovereignty Act, or something like how the, uh, the the province is responding to the federal government. I think there's a real danger that the wedge that already exists there between, say, Mayor Gondek and Premier Kenny, or Mayor Sohi and Premier Kenny. I think that that only widens by adding in something like this Sovereignty Act. So so how that plays out is there's always friction. There's always a back and forth. There's always a uh, uh, potential for clawback on cash, potential for reduction in transfers. All of these sorts of things end up playing out because, as we've talked many times before, cities are a creature of the province, and the province can just dictate how much or how little cities get in terms of of leverage in terms of funding in terms of of ability to to legislate in their own cities and i think that's another real danger here for calgary and edmonton by having something like the sovereignty act or or that mentality in office in our province
0: well i think um, there used
2: to be a time when mayors from you know edmonton or calgary
0: they had a bit of Political firepower to be able to challenge the premier. You know, there was a time when they go, hey, we we aren't getting enough funding. We're going to challenge you because it's right before an election, or it's an opportune time to little get get a little bit more capital funding. But now we're seeing a real shift in that that ability slowly being eroded away, right? Slowly, we're not saying all, all in one shot, but through successive governments potentially down the road, they won't have that same ability anymore as, you know, Alberta is trending kind of towards, you know, doing its own thing, being kind of like the new Quebec, you know, with their own plans in mind, with their own provincial police force, with their own way of doing things. You know, I saw a hilarious, this is totally off top, I saw this hilarious thing where the, the script between Quebec and Alberta have changed, right? You know, 30 years ago, it was Quebec, the separatist and boring conservative politics. Now it's the other way around. Quebec's got boring conservative politics and Alberta has got this separatist, you know, tendency or, 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 or personality going on. So it's an interesting point you brought up about the city provincial relationship. I think as, as Alberta trends away, it's just going to ignore kind of what the cities want. It's got a higher, it's got a, not a mandate, but a a different you know track that it want to go it wants to go down. And that also throws a wrench into how cities will be able to plan long term. what's the funding? where how are they going to plan a new purple line or orange line of, of the LRT, right? as an example.
1: I just want to make one more point, and it's just around, I think this idea of identity as well, which is something that I that I have been thinking about. I, I read a report. I think it was from the Canada West Foundation that said like a lot of Calgarians prefer identifying as Calgarian over Albertan, uh, and that's because they believe that Calgarian has a more positive connotation than Albertan, which I thought was like very interesting. And I wonder if like things like this continue to um to, feed that, you know, that kind of thought around like who somebody is when they, when they live in Calgary, that identity piece. And I will say too, as someone who like immigrated to this country and like swore, you know, we were just talking about how I swore an oath at 18, because that's when I became a, a citizen. We have a high immigrant population in this country in, especially here in, um, even here in, in Calgary in Alberta. And I think a lot of people who like me came to this country for a better opportunity have a loyalty to this idea of Canada, because that's where we have like, you know, had this like better life type of thing. And so I I wonder if like, I I really wonder if this like anti, it's not an anti-Canadian thing, but this like anti-federalism thing is going to play well with different populations. And I think there's, there's something else to be said about what and I, I'm not educated enough to speak on this, but like what it means for, you know, indigenous nations who have like treaties with the federal government. And like, how does something like this meaningfully take that into account? So I just think there's so many layers to that. And and there, it's been dismissed by Danielle.
2: I think just one final thing to to close this off, uh, Esmahan, you mentioned the most Calgarians would identify with Calgarians uh, over being Albertan. There was also another survey done by research co, uh, Mario Kenseko that said less than 25% of Albertans actually bought into this idea of sovereignty uh, as it is kind of referred to by Danielle Smith's Sovereignty Act. So there's that as well.
1: It's not a beloved idea in Alberta. It's not a very Albertan act, I don't think. Um, Well, we are going to go into some quick hits. Darren?
2: Sure. Uh, So I'm going to start off with this one. Calgary City Council is back after a summer break, so that means there's going to be a lot more civic issues to talk about. We hit on uh, one of them today with the story about the three new communities that came up at the Infrastructure and Planning Committee meeting. Full City Council meeting starts September 13th. I do want to touch on one other thing that came out of that, and they're actually discussing it right now. Not to put an absolute specific timestamp on when we recorded this podcast, but they are talking about the addition of uh, a missing middle change to the land use bylaw. Uh, I know Jeremy, you had referenced something that's going on in Victoria around the missing middle. What happens right now is if a missing middle sort of project comes up in land use, uh, it usually goes to direct control and that's caused a lot of consternation in the development community because communities think that we're just giving a blank slate to to developers for their their projects that do not meet typical land use bylaws so whether or or land use designations whether it's a an RC1 RC2 you know RCG those sorts of things so uh, they are actually adding something in regarding the missing middle uh, to address that that sort of gap in in city planning. I think it's worth mentioning the global story about CPS training and how they have apparently, been using a company out of uh, i think the US or or actually all parts north america frankly according to the story that that maybe doesn't have the best reputation or or any reputation at all and global has an expert in their story who says that the that the certifications or the degrees or whatever that this organization puts out aren't worth the paper that they're written on so Uh, I'm sure there's going to be more to this story. I know that we're chasing it down. We're trying to get some response from the CPC and from Calgary City councillors as well on that. So I'm sure there will be more on that in the coming days. I also want to note as we close up quick hits that the mayor was in California with Calgary Film Commissioner Luke Azevedo. They were promoting the city's film industry. And that may sound like a broken record player kind of thing, that they're always doing promotion for the city's film industry. But uh, Luke Azevedo said something really interesting. He said, you have always got to be in front of these studio executives so that it keeps the pipeline full. They've got to see all of the benefits. And he said the conversation has changed, whether it's about Calgary as a city or about the film credits or about major productions that have been here and some of the locations in and around the city. So always something to sell when they're down in California talking about the film industry. And they were down there this week to do that.
1: Okay, so that's it for this edition of the Ward Zero podcast. But before we go, I'm going to throw it to you one more time, Darren.
2: We interrupt this program. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you know what? We haven't been doing this much. We don't do a lot of uh, the marketing promo for LiveWire Calgary on, on the podcast. But I just wanted to remind listeners that LiveWire Calgary and through that, the Ward Zero podcast is primarily funded by community members. We are on a mission to draw 500 members at $10 per month. So nowadays that's less than your Netflix, less than your Apple TV, less than your Amazon Prime subscription, all that uh, and and we do that so we can preserve strong local journalism here in Calgary and foster discussions like the ones we have here on this podcast. You can join us at patreon.com slash LiveWire Calgary. But if you're not ready to make that steady commitment, you can also make a one-time donation at livewirecalgary.com under the membership tab. There has never been a more important time to support quality local journalism and right now actually members are helping us decide where we should be directing our resources next so join in on that we'd love to have you
1: well i am a very happy subscriber so if you want to talk municipal politics there are a lot of ways you can do so twitter spaces maybe we'll be restarting in september uh stay tuned for that with darren but you can hear from him on Twitter at LiveWire You can also hear from Jeremy at JZ from Calgary and me at Esmahan YYC. um Send us a tweet. Tell us what your thoughts are about city council, about anything that we said in the podcast. We would be very happy to hear from you. Thanks and have a great rest of your day.